We're back. We're going to do our questions now. All right, here we go. First question. Please do not take my question as snarky or facetious. I generally want to want your opinion on the situation as I am in a similar situation myself. In regard to the question you answered last week on the woman with the emotional support animal, I believe you said that the group should show mercy and compassion to this woman and allow her to bring her dog to the lodge. If the situation was not about a dog, but was about a smoker who said that they needed cigarettes to help them with life's trauma, would you tell the group that they should give the person mercy since uh, they said they say that the need the cigar they need the cigarettes to allow them um, and, and therefore allow them to smoke, even uh, if the smoke is far away from everyone, the smell is still there on their clothes and luggage. Now, this is a very interesting question, and it actually brings to uh, mind, um, uh, it allows us to explore several different issues that are competing with each other. First, the context. Context always matters. And last week, if you remember, the question was about uh, a woman who was going to be meeting her daughter-in-law for the first time at a family event. A newly a, a woman who just married into the family, and this was their first family event together at a neutral site, a lodge, and the daughter-in-law wanted to bring her emotional support animal. Uh, should the family make an issue of that or not? And because they were setting a foundation for a long-term relationship, uh, the recommend and it was at a neutral site rather than their home. The idea was be gracious. You don't know her trauma background or her issues. Get to gather more information. Don't make an issue up front. Allow her to bring the dog if that's what she's got the documentation of emotional support animal. Um, but there, those were given all the elements. If it would have been something like she wanted to bring the dog to your home, then you might say, hey, we're glad to meet you at a restaurant where you can bring the dog if you don't want a dog in your home. That's a different issue. Uh, and so... You have to, um, how do you help support somebody with their concerns and set reasonable boundaries for what you what you want to be around? Those are different questions. And the question of cigarette smoke, now you add several others. One, um, there are actually potential laws involved uh, where cigarette smoking can be, be, be utilized. Uh, for instance, public spaces, most spaces don't allow it anymore. Cigarette smoke is actually harmful on secondhand smoke. And so there's actually a reasonableness not to uh, collude with activities that overtly harm other people. It's not just uh, unpleasant, it's actually harmful. Uh, and so the conversation would be, in my view, on cigarette smoke, you have a lot of other reasons to set some healthy boundaries and, and not tell them that they can't smoke, but that they can't smoke around you. And if that's what they want to do in a place that allows it, like if you're in an outdoor picnic area and they want to smoke at the picnic table with you, uh, you would simply get up and move yourself. Instead of confronting them and tell them they can't smoke there, you move yourself because it's a place they're permitted to smoke. That, that would be the way I would do it. And, and perhaps a whole group of you move at the same time. And, and that person might say, hey, what's going on? Well, we respect you and we respect that you want to smoke. And so we're all moving because we find it unpleasant and we don't want to in any way be critical of you. And it puts the pressure back on them to decide whether they're going to continue to smoke. And most people at that point would go, hey, sorry about that. I didn't realize it was offensive. I'll go over there and smoke. Most people would do that. And that's how I would handle that question. Next question. Uh, what do you think? of God telling the Jews to burn people with fire because of wickedness as described in Leviticus 20.14 and 21.9. This is a very interesting question. In order to answer the question, you have to, you have to ask a couple of questions. 
in order to answer this one. Ask a couple of questions. What's the context? Who are the people? What's the landscape? Uh, is what's being described in Leviticus the plan of salvation? In other words, we follow the, that list of things precisely. We will find salvation in following that list of things. So the landscape is, and what's God's attitude? What law lens are you looking for, through? So the overall biblical landscape of what's happening there is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned, God promises a Messiah to save the human species. Without Jesus, not one human being is saved from sin. If that promise of Genesis 3.15 doesn't happen, all humans are lost. And so the whole Old Testament is the outworking of that promise. And that's why the Bible lens focuses where it focuses. That's why we focus on Abraham, because after the flood, God says uh, it's through Abraham's family that this promise will be realized. And that's why we focus on Isaac, not Ishmael, because it's through Isaac. That, and that's why we focus on Jacob and not Esau, because it's through Jacob's family, not Esau's family. And that's why the Bible narrows down our focus through time. And so here we have now this group of Jacob's children through whom Messiah is going to come, and they had just come out of this 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And God, what do I think of what God doing this? What do you think God's attitude was that he had to do this? You have children. What would your heart and mind be thinking if it was truly necessary to tell your children when you go out to the playground today, don't kill anybody? Don't murder anybody. If that was necessary to prevent them from doing it, what would you think? What, what would be the situation? I understand God is doing this because he finds it's necessary. So what does that say about the state of the people? That he has to write these rules. These rules are not the plan of salvation. They're to provide some type of protection. And then why the death penalty associated with the rules, you might ask. And if you look at those rules and you bring in, understand design law and understand the principles of genetics and understand the plan of salvation, you will understand that these are uh, mostly related to some types of sexual infidelity that brings all types of damage genetically and epigenetically to people and breeding diseases and so forth that God is working to prevent. But why does he associate the death penalty and burning in fire? Why does he do that? Well, I tell this story. It's a true story, and it gets a point across. Uh, after Desert Storm, Desert Shield, the United States, for a period of time, occupied a region in Iraq, including Baghdad, Baghdad and they established what's called a safe zone or a green zone. And it was administered by a U.S. administrator or governor for a period of time until their government got up and running and we pulled out. During that period of time when a U.S. Govern, uh, US administrator was administering the govern, government there, there was a store that was firebombed by the locals and a store owner and the two employees were killed by the firebomb. Why was the store a firebomb? Because a local mullah put out a fatwa, which was a religious order, that in grocery stores, celery stalks were not to be displayed next to tomatoes. <laughs> this is true. It's a true story. I've got the references. You can look it up. Because, according to the local mullah, this could be misperceived as male genitalia. So we, we should not do these perverse things. So they have to be displayed at separate places. In this store, the celery was next to the tomatoes, and therefore the local religious zealots blew the store up and killed the three people. Now, if you are the a U.S. administrator of this region, which do you think is a more serious crime? Celery stalks next to tomatoes or driving drunk? In your judgment, what's more serious? 
driving drunk, right? Of course. If you want the people to believe driving drunk is at least as serious as celery stalks next, next to tomatoes, it's at least that bad, and they believe that is worthy of death, then what penalty will you have to give driving drunk if you want them to take it serious? You'll have to give it the death penalty. If you give it a $500 fine or 10 days in jail, it won't be nearly as serious as celery stalks and tomatoes. <laughs> and that's what God was dealing with in the Old Testament. They were slaves, and they could be killed for minor infractions. And he was dealing with that, and, and he set these rules like this. And, and you see, he changes it later when he comes in person. When the woman is caught in adultery, and they wanted to stone her, he didn't pick up stones to stone. He stopped it. Because this was not the means of finding salvation to treat people this way. This was the means of bringing order to a chaotic slave society and setting some structure that would maintain the uh, family through which Messiah would come. And hopefully, they'll ultimately lead them back to what you see in all the prophets like Hosea 6.6, Micah 6.6, and others where it says, uh, I do not want your sacrifices. It's your love that I want. And, and he wanted them to lead them this way. But this is where he had to start. Next question. Uh, how does God want to view the world? How do you stay upbeat and happy in a sinful world? Loved ones not wanting to know God. How do you deal with loved ones not wanting to know God uh, and, 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 and are suffering or suffering with physical and mental anguish? And so the challenge is to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Understand that in this world and the prophecy that Jesus gave us, things are not going to get better before Jesus comes. They're going to get worse. And as you see those things, if you don't understand the context, you could get very distressed. Jesus used the context of a woman going into labor. And any woman who's gone through labor knows that the labor pains increase in intensity and rapidity, meaning more frequently, until delivery. And the problems we see in this world are going to get more intense and more frequent. But if you have the right attitude, I don't know, I, I seriously don't know one woman who was pregnant or has gone through a pregnancy that when the labor pains came, she prayed, dear God, give, please put this off for another nine months. <laughs> never, never knew one. They knew it was going to be painful, but they wanted to go through it because they knew what was coming. The delivery was coming. And so many Christians, when they see the troubles, pray to the Lord to stop it, hold it off, put it at bay. Let's, let's, let's do something to slow it down rather than prepare and bring on the end because we're looking for delivery. Even so, Amen. come Lord Jesus. So that's how I would handle that. Focus on, on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. There's a couple of questions that are posted this week that were posted last week, so I'm not going to answer them this week. I answered them in the, in the last week. You can see those answers. Reading your Revelation 13 and 17 from Victoria, Australia, was one of the, uh, from Victoria, Australia. In Victoria, Australia, one of the hardest hit in the world for lockdowns, the people are pushing back both with an election, but more importantly, setting up alternative communities with a view of bypassing governments and big corporations. Is this a big swing back to values, Christian values? Uh, will this potentially be what causes the people to demand the governments to force Sunday laws somehow? However, there are many governments that have grabbed their power by deception, and this is part of and is this part of the pushback? 
just wondering how all this fits together in the end times, trying to wrap my head around it. Well, I kind of went through what I thought was going to happen in a general way during class today. And at the end of the uh, Revelation um, booklet, I actually give a little scenario there as well. And that uh, there are going to be terrible distressors and pressers coming on the world, making people feel afraid and fear leads to selfishness. And they want to feel safe. And the way people that are selfish try to feel safe is by exerting more control on the world around them and more and, and exerting more more um, pressure upon people. And so into this chaos comes a supernatural being who's going to claim to have the ability to save us and will deceive the world into following him as he brings his powers to bear to save us. Uh, I think um, many people are doing other things to try and feel safe and try to find those. I don't think in this time in history this, that there's any really place you can run geographically to get away with it, away like they could in the dark ages, there were many places on the planet you could still go and establish. I, I don't know that there's uh, really any places like that geographically anymore. A man walked into Walmart where he worked and killed six co-workers. Is he evil, mentally ill, or both? What happens in persons' brains who have not, who have not been violent or criminal to trigger such extreme behavior? So... I don't know whether this man was evil, mentally, or both, because I haven't examined him and I've seen no evidence. I have no idea. It certainly could be either one. There are evil people who do evil things, and there are people who have breaks with reality to do harmful things. Uh, both, both are true. And, and what are the factors and the contributing factors? Uh, science has looked at this. Uh, you have to be very discerning when you look at this because there's a lot of literature out there that is that is generated for political purposes that will suggest solutions that actually have no real bearing. Uh, in my view, the real uh, the uh, the data that I looked at recently shows that in America, I think 65% of mass killings are done with guns, and 35% are done with something other than guns. So guns are not the only way that people do mass killings; they do them in other ways as well. Uh, it's not really about the guns. The guns are just the means. People do mass killings with cars driving through parades. People do mass killings with bombs. People do mass killings with knives. Uh, people have been on killing. So the problem, we really shouldn't be looking, in my view, at the means. We should be looking at what's going on in the people and what are the factors in society that contribute to that. Uh, one study showed that during COVID, the uh, uh, number of these types of killings increased. Well, and they identified because pressures increased, financial pressures, fear, stress, anxiety, social isolation, loss of support. The things that would keep people in a stable place um, were removed and the things that destabilized people emotionally and mentally were increased. Those are definite factors. Uh, clear, there's clear unequivocal evidence that shows childhood family upbringing makes a big difference. Um, chaotic childhoods, abusive childhoods, uh, exploitive childhoods set a template for uh, later life violence. It's, it's unquestionable. Healthy families significantly reduce it. Taking God out of society, teaching people that there is no higher principles, higher uh, standards, higher morality. There is no reason to love others. Teaching people that, in fact, we evolve from lower life forms, and it's the survival of the fittest, the strong survive, and the strong kill the weak. Teaching these methods and principles and instill a philosophy in people that can justify this type of behavior. And then legalizing all types of illegal substances. Several studies have shown that as marijuana has become legalized and more potent, this high-potency marijuana that people have today, in fact, I saw, I saw a study a couple of months ago that essentially every mass shooting event in the last 20, in the last 20 years has been done with people who who were using high-frequency use of marijuana, and that causes significant changes in the brain. That data, while published in the literature, is not advanced in the 
published in the scientific literature is not advanced in the media because it goes against the the uh, the political agenda of some who want legalization for financial profits and they're willing to take the um, take the consequences of that on society and it also serves another agenda they can increase violence with um, by by in, in increasing the use of uh, high potency marijuana in society violence will go up shootings will go up and it advances and they making more money and at the same time it advances the agenda to to get more gun control laws in where they can then have more power over population so there's a lot of reasons why this is happening and and there are certainly evils involved and there's mental illness involved but there's other and some of the evil isn't isn't coming from the people doing doing the shooting only it's coming from these other forces working to create the societal decay and the loss of the family that's that is an evil thing as well Please expand on how the integrative evidence-based approach would remedy the confusion of Scripture alone yielding 44,000 denominations. Uh, how exactly would the application affect the numbers? Uh, if it is possible, that, is it possible that people could adopt the approach and still have multiple denominations? So the Bible, uh, so the integrative evidence-based approach is that we pursue truth through finding truths in which the Scripture supports and it's truth in Scripture, but also that same truth is revealed in science and nature, and that same truth is revealed in how life actually works, the experiences of life. And the Bible teaches that God reveals himself on all three threads, and if we can find truths that all three support, then we have harmony and we have agreement. Uh, what happens is we people have separated those, and much of the friction and, and division in uh, religion uh, is because people will use the Bible by itself decoupled from uh, the other two threads of evidence that God has provided, and then therefore they will come up with superstitious uh, theologies or doctrines that are actually contradictory to objective reality, and I could give a long, long list of these. And so, uh, no, I, I, I don't think that you would have a disunion, and in fact, the Bible teaches that there is a, uh, a union uh, or a harmony inherent in our faith. And as we come to true faith and understand God and practice his principles, Jesus prayed that we all come into unity and a oneness, and, and we will come into unity and oneness of our faith or our principles or our methods. But we still, because we're human and finite, still may have differences of opinion on uh, who's the king of the north and who's the king of the south or this beast or that beast. That's okay, but, but, but we all practice the same principles of loving truth, loving God, loving each other, presenting our ideas, leaving people free. And so in that, we have a unity, even though we may disagree on certain points or certain understandings, we still have unity of faith and love and fellowship for each other. Uh, I I'm from Kenya and would like to have Come and Reason Ministry Office, which contains your materials, books. Uh, is that possible? If yes, how do we go about it? Uh, I will find space uh, and, per and personnel, but getting the materials is what I don't know if that's okay and how to get them. So uh, e email us at requests, R-E-Q-U-E-S-T-S, requests at comeandreason.com and start a conversation with our team about this process and what it would entail. And uh, typically overseas, what has to happen is that you have to have a lo local funding and publishing there. It is too expensive for us to publish and ship and the import costs. We're, we're not opposed to that, but you can actually, we can, we can produce these things cheaper by printing them in country. And so in Australia, we have a team down there and they have a publi uh, publisher that they work with and, and we publish down there and same thing in South Africa. So start us uh, an email conversation and we will work with you to see if we can't get that worked out. 
I have been going through some Adventist history, and I'm frequently left in awe by some details. Have you read The Living Temple by J.H. Kellogg? Care to share your thoughts, or rather, do you find any gems from any of his controversial work? So, first off, there's a general principle. Uh, And the principle of deception is that when you deceive or mislead, you do not typically mislead with 100% falsehood. Satan's method is to take truths and introduce and mix truths with falsehood. Kellogg's book has a lot of truths in it, but it's mixed with falsehood. And the primary mixture of falsehood is he introduced this idea of um, pantheism and that uh, God, and he takes an idea that's true, that God created everything. And he takes an idea that's true, that God's energy sustains everything. And he connects God's energy sustaining with the presence of God being. And if the God's presence is there, then we're holy because we have God's presence here because God, God sustains our life. Uh, that's pantheism. Uh, and, he, and, it, and it kind of depersonalizes God. And so he introduces a falsehood and, and, and gives lots of analogies from it. And so, no, I, I don't think the book is something that I would advance or recommend to people because it can cause confusion. So can you expand your idea on our software is, is cleansed in death? What is the biblical evidence of this? I know Sister White says that we go to the grave with the character we have and are raised with the same character. How does this fit with your ideas of cleansing death? So I encourage you to read our, our book, our magazine online, The Investigative Judgment um, for the Modern World. Uh, you can get, download the PDF. You can read it online. And on December 11, we'll be releasing a new work, A Christ Cleansing His Bride, which will go into this in great detail. And that will be a place you can find that expansion. Uh, any idea of uh, this is oh, – um, this question was asked last week, so we're not going to answer it again this week. Uh, I have uh, several people that I talk to daily that have cognitive dissonance when discussing what happened at the cross versus the final fires. Do you have a blog that contrasts the fires that consume versus God's um, glory? So I encourage you to go to our website, type in hell uh, and, uh, or, or consuming fire and, and see what blogs pop. I've written about this in multiple, multiple, multiple places. And, and and one of my videos, um, the video on the media section, God in your, uh, excuse me, um, you got in your church or growing up in Christ under the uh, answering difficult Bible questions. There's a whole section on this where I go through the evidence of it. It's in my um, book, uh, The God-Shaped Brain, an entire chapter on it. Uh, there, uh, uh, It is in the um, Three Angels. Yes, the Three Angels uh, it's in where I go through it. So you can find it in multiple places uh, if you look for it. The Three Angels might be the one you want uh, to go through, and you can get that again online uh, and download that. What is the difference between the fires that consume Nadab and Abihu in the final fire, or did Nadab and Abihu receive the final fire? So my view is that the Bible exposed them to consuming fire. It says our God is a consuming fire. They died before the Lord, yet their bodies were not burned. And this is an evidence of the type of fire that will burn or consume sin and that will ultimately destroy the wicked, and it's not a fire of combustion. After the wicked die... Then the fires of combustion come where the elements melt in fervent heat. So the final end has two types of fire. The fire of God's life-giving glory that bays the whole earth and the rest of the universe lives in it. And the new Jerusalem will not need the sun because God's presence will be its light and we will live in that fire. 
Uh, and that fire does not harm. What harms is sin. Sin is, uh, it cannot exist in that full revealed fire. And that's why Jesus veiled his glory when he came, because if he didn't veil that glory, he would have destroyed those he came to save, because we have to be cleansed from sin in order to live in that fire. So it's sin that destroys, not God. Nadab and Avihu were, were exposed to that fire, and they couldn't live in it. But that is not combustion. And so at the end, there's the fire of God's glory. And then when everyone is de- dead, then the fires of combustion cleanse the earth. Can you please give some methods and tools to help regulate and treat symptoms of a large amygdala? You know, uh, using large, I would say overactive amygdala. And yes, many things can calm the amygdala. So you want to make sure you have a good sleep. Uh, you want to make sure that you have uh, uh, addressed cognitive ideas and uh, that that incite fear our amygdalas are designed to fire when we uh, uh, when we um, perceive something that's an actual threat or danger to bring us to alertness so we can take proper action if you smell smoke in the building you're in uh, your amygdala should fire to alert you to the potential you can get up and get out or potentially save somebody who's in danger brings you to alert and motivates you to action and so many people, though, have ideas in their head where they are in constant fear of rejection, fear of what others think. And so there's oftentimes a lot of psychological reprocessing or cognitive work that needs to be done to reframe life experiences that so they're not perceived in so threatening manners that calm the amygdala. Biblical meditation will ultimately result in calming the amygdala, but biblical meditation will often, for the unconverted, take a person to a place where they have activation of the amygdala because the biblical meditation will take them to the point where they're convicted of the sin in their life to bring them to repentance, and that is very anxious and stressful. But once they experience repentance, they experience God's grace, and the amygdala calms. So biblical meditation can do that. Uh, We must maintain good physical health. Uh, sleep. If you're if you're sleep deprived, your amygdala will be more irritable you're, because your prefrontal cortex doesn't have its normal calming signal down. And so, I would tell you, you know, read my book, The Aging Brain, and the healthy things you do in that would, would be beneficial. Which do which do you believe offers more healing power over disease, the mind body connection or the diet body connection? I'm going to pause right there and simply say this question is like asking. Which do you think will offer more healing power over disease, clean water or clean air? Okay, that, that's what your question is like asking. Um, both of these are essential to health, and if you are, have an unhealthy mind-body connection or unhealthy diet, you will have disease from both. It's not either or, it's both. So it's, it, we don't want to compare those. Will believing a lie, such as the lies we have been asked to believe the past two years and the lies about God and the lies about how God's laws operate, produce more diseases and kill more people than the COVID uh, could ever dream of? Well, eternally, yes. Uh, And and consequently, uh, you know, I don't know how to quantify that. Uh, the, The COVID itself caused all kinds of harm. But the COVID caused harm in other ways by introducing conflict, fear, uh, the social isolation that people went through, uh, increases all-cause mortality, accelerates death, increases dementia. Uh, Many, many things consequently coming from that also harmed. So I don't see that's an either-or. Yes, harm came from both. Are are we about to see a tsunami of autoimmune and other psychosomatic illnesses and mental illnesses? Yes, we are. 
Absolutely. It's not simply from COVID. It is from a worldwide agenda. The world, the, the powers that are running our media, understand this, the powers that are running our media are bent on inciting fear. The media messaging is be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, because it's easiest to manipulate people if you can get to convince them to be afraid of something, and then you also provide them a solution to help them be less afraid. You can manipulate people this way. It's historic. And now with the media control we have, and remember, the Bible says at the end of time, Satan is like a roaring lion uh, seeking whom he may devour. A lion's roar does not actually harm. A lion's roar incites fear. And that's what this hap- is happening in the world, fear messaging, and it will cause all types of harm, both in distress, activating amygdala, causing inflammatory cascades for sure, but also harm in how we treat others because we become more self-centered and take selfish actions. If I listen to a live broadcast via a website, the picture is clear, but the sound is intermittent. On Facebook, the picture is blurry, but the sound is fine. Is this a problem on my end or a common reason? I, I don't know. Um, uh, Dean, you're going to have to answer that question. Hello, I'm getting better at proper discernment using design law. Could you please help me with this from the Desire of Ages, chapter 69, third paragraph, where he referred to the destruction of Jerusalem. His prophetic words reached beyond that event to the final conflagration in uh, that day uh, when the Lord shall rise out of his place to punish the world for their iniquity, uh, when the earth shall disclose her blood, uh, that shall no more cover this land. Now, quoting, quoting a Bible verse, as the question isn't, isn't whether there is punishment. It's God's method in punishing. We went over this in great detail last week. Go, go to last week's lesson. Get the notes from last week's lesson where I have a, great, a long quote from Ellen White from Great Controversy and unpack it with my red comments. Or you can watch the lesson from last week where I actually walk through his retributive justice and how that method works out and how that punishment comes. And God handles it in such a way that it is not an infliction from God he leaves them free to reap what they have sown into their own character. And he stopped, understand this, God has been using power. God has been using power since Adam and Eve sinned to hold at bay what sin would naturally do to the sinner to provide opportunity for salvation. And what happens at the end, God stops using his power to hold at bay what sin does to the sinner. And the punishment finally comes. The wage of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow in the carnal nature reap that destruction. And we went through it in great detail last week. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your truth. And we just pray that you will pour out your spirit on all hearts and minds around the world who are receptive to your final message. Empower us to take this message to the world, to lighten it for your soon return. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.